0: We have now officially turned our attention to Christmas. It actually started last week, but I wasn't here to give you the official announcement that Thanksgiving is over and we can turn our attention to Christmas, though most of you don't need that announcement because some of you have had your minds on Christmas for weeks, if not months, already. But now it's okay in my book for you to think about Christmas. In fact, with Thanksgiving coming late, We are only two and a half weeks away from Christmas morning. Christmas is a time of year when it seems like everyone's just a little bit nicer. Yes, I know we could talk about the anxiety that comes along with all that we have to do. I realize there are some who are stressed at Christmas because of all the activities and responsibilities. I certainly know there are some who can be depressed at the Christmas season because of memories of the past, but by and large, Christmas is a time when folks are a little bit nicer. Somehow we manage to grasp the idea at this time of year that it is about such things as peace, joy, hope, and love. Those are the four candles of the Advent season, with the fifth in the middle being the Christ candle. And yet that doesn't change the fact that ours is a nation, in spite of what we will do over the next couple of weeks, ours is a nation that is severely divided on a number of issues and in various ways. And that division only seems to be getting worse. We are divided by such things as race. We still see the ugliness of racial conflict rearing its head more times than certainly than it should. We are divided by religion, or in some cases, no religion at all. You've been following the news here in our own county this past week about a program that's been piloted in the school systems right down the road from us, allowing students to get out of school for one period a day and go to a local church and study the Bible, something in a little bit different way that we did here for many years. And I realize there are some complexities to that. I realize there are some academic concerns, and so I'm not trying to speak one way or the other. I'm simply trying to acknowledge one aspect of this controversy that I read in the paper this week. The opponents of those who did not like this idea said that it was not safe for children to leave school and study the Bible. That's in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's in North Knox County, just a few miles from us. There are people who are saying, for whatever reason, and I don't know the details, but for whatever reason, they are saying it is not safe for children to study the Bible. We are divided over religion. We are divided over politics. I certainly don't have to tell you that. We have reached a point in our nation where we cannot even dialogue across party lines over issues. It is too emotional. And it gets angry too quickly. We now just call people names on the other side, understanding that we are right about everything and they are wrong about everything, and so we can't even have an honest dialogue anymore about the issues and what needs to be done. We are divided over interests. That is, we huddle together with the people who think and act like we do, and we point our fingers skeptically at those who are on the opposite side of our interests. And we are divided economically, the rich getting richer while the poor remain poor. And I'm confident there are other areas in which we are divided, but you get the point. And Christmas, as wonderful as it is, is not going to change these divisions. Even though we set aside a few weeks to think about hope and joy and peace and love, it is not going to ultimately change these divisions. However, the message of Christmas will the message of Christmas is the answer to all of these divisions and many more that message being that God in Christ has come the incarnation God becoming man living and dying and rising again ascending to the right hand of the father all in an effort to provide salvation for sinners like us but the question then becomes how will people hear about this message? Merely celebrating Christmas doesn't mean that they understand the meaning of Christmas. You will have friends and coworkers, and maybe even some family members who will do virtually everything you do at Christmas. They will put lights on their house. They will put a tree inside their living room. They will buy presents and distribute them on the 25th of this month. And yet they will have absolutely no idea or understanding about what all of this is about. How will they come to know that? Well, as we've already heard, read, they must hear the message. The angel announced to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is news. News must be communicated. It is news that when communicated and understood will bring about great joy. But people cannot have that joy unless they hear the news, and people cannot hear the news unless someone tells them. And generally speaking, people are more open during this time of year to conversations about Christ. So they must hear whether that is Brad going back to his country on Tuesday to share the message with 84 million people, the vast majority of them who have never heard, or whether that is you going to your neighbor or coworker and sharing the message with them. But they not only need to hear the message, they need to see that the message makes a difference in your life. Now, I am not trying to create a dichotomy between telling the story and showing the story. I'm not trying to say that one is more important than the other. I think both are significant. But we must not only tell them the news, but they must see that the news has made a difference in our life. Years ago, in fact, it was the year before my birth. There was a song that was very popular at the time and has been redone from time to time. A song that said, what the world needs now... Is love, sweet love, for that is the only thing there is too little of. Now I recognize that that song has absolutely nothing to do with the love of God in Christ, but its message is still true. The world needs love, and it is the thing that there is too little of, and Christmas is about love. It is about God in Christ demonstrating his love by coming into that manger in Bethlehem and then all of the subsequent events of his life, death, and resurrection. God becoming man that we might be saved. And so you say, yes, tell me about the love of God for me. What a wonderful message that is. And with all of the things I have going on in my life, that is what I need to hear. In fact, yesterday, from this very pulpit in the midst of a funeral, I did share that message from Romans chapter 8, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you will remind me of that, it will help me to love Him more. And if I love Him more, I will worship and serve Him in greater capacities. But that is not the aspect of love that I want to major on this morning. It is true and it is significant. But it is not the aspect I want to major on. God loves us. We see that in the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And because God loves us, we now love him. We who are believers in Christ love God in response to God's love for us. But it is the third step that I want to talk about today. Not God's love for us, nor our love for God, But the thing that flows out of both of those, and that is our love for one another. And that is a lot harder. And in fact, we might even say, I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, let's look at our text, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, and we'll see what Jesus has to say about that. This is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment, that you love And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, when I select a text of Scripture and I begin studying it for the upcoming sermon, one of the first things I try to figure out is what we used to call in seminary the CIT. That is the central idea of the text. The CIT. Because everything in the sermon ought to flow from that central idea. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but that is the goal. That the sermon would be centered around that central idea of the text. Now, sometimes that's hard to figure out. If you read some of Paul's epistles, Paul has a tendency to go from one thought to another, and somewhat stray from the central idea because he's giving you layers and layers of his argument. So sometimes it takes a lot of work to come to that central idea. But that is not the case here. It is very easy in these verses to see what the central idea of the text is. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 17, this is my commandment that you love one another. This text is bracketed by the central idea, and that is our responsibility to love each other. Now, you may remember from our study of Mark's gospel that we looked at the last public words of Jesus, and that was followed by an extensive private time between him and his disciples a time of teaching them. We are now in that time, not in Mark's gospel. Clearly we are in John. But this is the section in John's gospel where Jesus is giving his disciples that private instruction before his arrest and crucifixion. In John's gospel, that time goes all the way from chapter 13 through chapter 17. And there are some significant events here. The washing of the disciples' feet, the last words of instruction that they are going to be severely tempted to walk away once he uh, leaves them. There is the announcement of his betrayal. There is that last time together in the Passover meal. All of this taking place prior to his betrayal and arrest in the garden. And so their whole mindset of who Jesus is and what they've been doing over the last three years or so is going to come under fire in the next few moments when all of these events transpire. So as a group, are they going to stick together? Are they going to remain followers of Christ and brothers together, knowing that they can do more together than they can ever do apart? In fact, that's basically the mantra of our cooperative program. We pool our resources to help missionaries because we understand we can do more together than any single Southern Baptist church can do alone. And so chapter 15 opens with the last of the seven I am statements. This time it is Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you know anything about that particular text, you know that there is one word that dominates in the first part of chapter 15, and it is the word abide. Your translations may say stay or remain or be connected, something like that, but it's all the same word abide. Abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. In fact, that is the only way to bear fruit. Again, something we talked about in our study of Mark's gospel. In verse five of chapter 15, Jesus says, apart from me, that is if you do not abide, You can do nothing. So what does it mean to abide? Well, essentially and quickly, it means obedience. That is, we show that we are abiding or remaining in Christ by our obedience. And through our obedience, then, we not only produce fruit, but that fruit, verse 11, results in joy. We all want joy, but it is something that we often struggle to find, not just in the Christmas season, but throughout the year. And it is often because we really do not believe that true joy is found in the presence of Christ. And therefore, we look for joy everywhere else, only to discover that we can't find it, or at least it's fleeting. Now, all of that leads us to verse 12, the verse we began reading this morning that gives us a specific command. One that, if it is followed, will result in fruit and joy. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has said this. If you still have your Bibles open, just flip back to chapter 13. It's just a page or so there. Chapter 13 and verse 34. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Same thing. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus says here that the mark of a genuine disciple, that is if you want to know what a true convert looks like, one of the most distinguishing characteristics is not that they go to church on Sunday or that they serve in some ministry throughout the week. Or that they put something in the plate when the offering plate comes around. Though there is nothing wrong with any of those things. And in fact, those are all very good things. But Jesus says the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that we love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Now even when we talk about loving one another, our minds probably go to loving those who are outside of the body of Christ. You say, I know, I know, I've got to make sure that I love my unbelieving neighbors. I've got to make sure that I love the co-workers that don't don't agree with me in issues of faith and religion. I know I need to do that, but that is not what we're talking about this morning. That is all true. We do need to love the unbelievers that we come in contact with. But what I'm talking about this morning is specifically how we are to love one another within the body of Christ. And therefore, the connection that comes from that, that as we love one another in the body, we will produce fruit. Sadly, many churches are more known for their lack of love than for their love. I was obviously joking earlier about our two pianists bickering over these pianos. But the truth of the matter is churches are often known for that kind of thing, arguing over unimportant details in the local body. Churches are often known for their contentious business meetings rather than for love of one another. And so this text is reminding us that what the world ought to know us by is how we love others. One another. Now, to be fair, this is difficult, but clearly we are called to do it. So, how do we do it? Well, number one, we see the model of Jesus in verse 13 I am to love you, and you are to love me as Jesus has loved us both. Now, I warned you that this is hard. We've talked before about the sacrificial love of Jesus. His willingness to die in our place and suffer for our sins. We, we talked again in Mark's gospel extensively about all the different angles of that. We talked about the physical pain that Jesus endured in our place. We talked about the emotionalism that was there. Him crying out on the cross. We talked about the spiritual aspect of his suffering, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And even in all of those discussions, we did not in any way mind the depths of Jesus' voluntary suffering on our behalf that we might be reconciled to God. And so this text returns to that same theme, again predicting for his disciples what he knows is going to occur in a very few short hours. And so we've talked in the past as well about how Jesus models this. His loving death took place on our behalf while we were still sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we had cleaned up our own act. He didn't die for us only after seeing that we would be pretty good on our own. He died in the midst of and in spite of our sin, And that is the model that we are to follow. Therefore, our love for other believers, our love for one another in the body of Christ is not based on the worthiness of the other person. It is not based on whether or not they deserve it or whether or not they are going to respond to you in a certain way. It is not based on what I might get out of it if I love them. It is to be an unconditional love that is not earned, it is not deserved, because that is the model that we see in Jesus. I was watching a Christmas special on television this past week, something I hardly ever do, as evidenced by the fact that when my wife walked into the room, she said, what are you watching? The truth of the matter was, I wasn't really watching it. I had come home from church on Wednesday night, I had fixed myself a sandwich, and I was eating dinner while watching Jeopardy! And Jeopardy! had gone off. And so the next program had come on. And I hadn't bothered to change the channel because I was messing around on my phone. And so this Christmas show comes on. And I think it was the lighting of the Christmas tree in New York City. I watched it long enough to hear one song. A song by John Legend. And the, the repeated chorus in the song caught my attention because I knew I was going to be preaching this sermon. I didn't know the song previously, but the repeated chorus in the song said this. Bring me love this Christmas because I've been good this year. That's the world's way of looking at love. I want love this Christmas. Why? Because I deserve it. That is not the biblical model of love. The biblical model of love is an unconditional love. And since our love for others is to be modeled after God's love for us in Christ, our love is to be unconditional as well. Now, we instinctively know that giving our life for someone else is the greatest sacrifice possible. That is why we honor those who have died in battle. We honor them for their, their sacrifice of giving their life so that we might be free. It is why on the rare occasions that we see an article about a parent who has died saving their child, we recognize that as a model of love. This parent loved their child enough that they gave their life so that their child would live. But in most, if not all of those cases, the reality is they're not willingly giving their love or their, their life, I should say. They are actually risking it, yes, But their hope is that they save not only their own life, but they save their child as well. Likewise, a soldier in battle, he's not trying to give his life away necessarily. He's trying to save his own life, but he's willingly risking his life so that others might be saved. My point in bringing that up is that Jesus willingly dies. He's not just risking his life and, oh, by the way, he dies in the process, He willingly and voluntarily gives his life while we are still sinners, which is why this is the ultimate example of love, the ultimate demonstration of dying to yourself for the sake of others. Again, something we saw in Mark's gospel that discipleship means we take up our cross daily and follow Christ. This is love sacrificing for the benefit of others, and our model is Jesus. John said it well in the first epistle. We, love, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus is our model who laid down his life for us. Therefore, we are to love one another even to the extent of laying down our lives for one another, because that's what biblical love is. So we've seen the model of love, that is Jesus. Secondly, we notice the mandate of love. And by this I mean that this is still a command. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Verse 14, what I command you. Verse 17, this I command commands you three times in this text we are told very clearly and expressly that loving one another is a command of Christ now we don't like to think in love of love in terms of commands we don't think the two things go together you can't command someone to love someone else after all love is a feeling love is an emotion And if that is your thought, then all that says is you do not understand biblical love. Because while love might include feelings and might include emotions, that is not the core of biblical love. Remember, let's go back to our model. How did Jesus show what true love is? What was the way he demonstrated ultimate love? He did not write us a poem, though there's nothing wrong with poetry, He did not write us a sappy song, though there, well, there might be something wrong with that. He acted. He did something on our behalf, and that is, he died in our place. So we are commanded to take up our cross and follow him. And this obedience is to be active, that is, it is something we do. Yes, we want to make sure that the feelings go along with it. And in fact, we'll talk about that in a moment. But feelings don't dominate. Obedience does. We act because God has commanded. And this act is continuous. That is, it's an ongoing action. This is not something that we are to do once this afternoon, having heard this sermon. And then we can check off the box that we have loved the brethren. No, this is something that we continually do throughout our Christian life. Because there is no vacation when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. And thirdly, this is something that is comprehensive. Verse 15, He has made known all things, and therefore we are to obey in all things, not just the parts we like or agree with. Now, before you write this off as a clever way to get us to try harder to love one another, to do better to make this church a loving church, which I believe it already is, but there's always room for improvement. We need to move to our third point, and that is the revelation from Jesus. I do not want you to miss an important connection here. The connection between what we've just talked about, the model of Jesus, that is, he died for us, that is, our model of love, the mandate of Jesus, that is, he has commanded this, and therefore we are to obey. But there is a connection. Our obedience ought to flow from love. That is, we come to understand his love for us, And in response to understanding his love for us, we love him in return. And both of those things then lead us to obey in loving others. We do not obey with clenched teeth and muttering thoughts or words, but with joyful love for the one who so loves us. Now, as parents, we understand that difference. We know and have experienced when our children are told to do something that they might do what we tell them to, but they certainly don't always do it joyfully. That is, they may stomp away, they may mutter, they may say things under their breath, They may physically do what you've commanded them to do, but there is no joy in that obedience. They are only doing it to avoid the consequences that might come if they didn't follow through. That is not the kind of obedience we have in mind here. Instead, we have in mind here the kind of obedience that flows from the love relationship between God and us and we know this as parents as well, we expect that our, parent, that our children are eventually going to come to understand that when we give them a command and tell them something to do, it is because we love them, and it is because we want to protect and provide for them, and because we know what's best for them, we tell them in some occasions what they ought to do. Hoping that someday, post-teenager, They will come to understand that all of this flows out of love. And that's the kind of obedience we ought to have. Well, the revelation is twofold. He reveals to us our relationship with him. Jesus calls us friends if we live in obedience. Can you imagine that? Being called a friend of God? Now, that does not mean that we are equal with God. You know, our own friendships are usually on par. That is, we're equal to people who like each other as friends and are on equal playing level. But that is not what we mean when God calls us friends. But we all want and need friends. The Bible itself says a friend loves at all times. And a man who wants friends needs himself to be friendly. And that's another aspect of God's love. It is eternal. It sticks with us through anything and everything because that's what a friend does. I have just finished a book. It's not a Christian book, but it's a very interesting book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a sociological book about what's wrong with children these days and not pointing the finger at children, but pointing the finger at parents and society as to how we treat children. But anyway, that's a subset. One of the things it does in that book is it goes through the phenomenon that has been increasing drastically in recent days on college campuses. When, when a speaker is invited to speak on the campus, there is often protests and often calls to disinvite the speaker because someone doesn't like the message that they are going to bring. So on a college campus, which is supposed to be a place for the sharing of ideas, We are now shutting that down because people can't handle ideas that they don't agree with. And so there is heckling of speakers and all of that. Well, that's not not anything new. This example goes years back. Chuck Colson, you remember his name. A man who gained fame for the Watergate scandal with President Nixon after his prison stint. He was invited to speak at a college, an Ivy League school. And so there were hecklers in the congregation uh, that were listening to him, people that did not like the fact that he was uh, an aide or an associate of President Nixon. And so they began heckling him, and they would say things like, Why did you support Richard Nixon? How could you have supported Richard Nixon? And finally the heckling got the best of him, and he just stopped. And he looked at his hecklers, and he said, I supported Richard Nixon because he was my friend. And instantly the whole crowd stood and applauded him because it hit a nerve with everybody. Hey, we all want someone who will stand beside us and support us no matter what. We all need a friend who, even when we make mistakes, will stand by our side. And I want you to understand that if you are a believer this morning, you have such a friend. And that friend is Christ. He calls us his friend in this particular text. And I I might want to add that in this day and age when friendship is moving more and more to relationships online, all of what I'm talking about this morning applies to what we do online. When we talk about loving the brethren, or the brethren, trying to mix the word brother and brethren, loving the brothers or brethren means we do the same thing online. Just because we're hiding behind our computer screen does not mean that we can be hateful and and criticize and that, that seems to be what dominates these days on social media. If we're to love one another face to face, we're to love one another online as well. We who are believers have a friend in Jesus. That is the first part of this revelation from Jesus. He calls us friends but the second part is he reveals our Father's heart. He makes the point that because we are friends, we are no longer called servants. He makes a comparison. Now, in some sense, we are still servants. Paul calls himself a servant on numerous occasions. So in some sense, we are still that, but he's making a point here that we are more than servants. A servant is simply told what to do and expected to do it. The relationship is built on command and obedience, nothing more. The master commands, the servant obeys. It's much like our our military relationships. When When a superior tells someone who is under him a subordinate what to do, that subordinate is to do it. No questions asked. But the difference in a friend and a servant is the matter of the relationship. A friend is given much more. Jesus reveals to us the heart, the mind, the motive, the plans of God the Father. In other words, we are given an inside scoop. Yes, we are still expected to obey. Just because we have a relationship doesn't mean we can be disobedient. But we are expected to obey out of the relationship we have because we know God's love and because we know God's plans and because we know God's purposes for us, we lovingly and willingly obey. We delight in it. I know some of you would say, well, I don't know everything I want to know. In fact, I, I often think to myself, if God would only show me this, then I would obey. And that's just a wrong way to look at it. Because we need to be reminded that God has indeed shown us much. And we find out so much about him in his word, and so let's rejoice in what we do know and follow accordingly. Well, there is one more thing I need to bring up, and I know that it might seem to you as if we have strayed from loving one another when in reality we have not. That is still our topic. We are to love one another in the body of Christ because of the model that we have in Jesus, a model of unconditional love while we were yet sinners. We are to love one another because of the mandate that we see here. It is biblically commanded. Therefore, whether we feel like it or not, we are to obey. But it goes beyond that. We are to love one another because God has revealed to us our relationship with him. We are now called friends, which includes the will of the Father. But then finally we see that we are to love one another because of the appointment of Jesus. With all of the privileges and position that goes with this, it's easy to see how it could go to the heads of the disciples. And to ours as well. And so Jesus quickly adds, who is in control here? If you go back to the stories of the calling of the first disciples, even as we did again in Mark's gospel, you will find that it was Jesus who has taken the initiative. Many of them were just minding their own business. They were not seeking Jesus. Some of them were fishing. And Jesus said, hey, put down your nets and come follow me. And they obeyed and did it. Even the case of Nathanael, Philip Philip is found by Jesus, and he goes and gets his brother Nathanael and brings him to Jesus, and yet Jesus says, even then, Nathanael, I knew you before you came. I saw you under that tree. All of which reminds us that it is God who is active in our salvation. We are not in control And Jesus reminds his disciples of that, that salvation is an act of God from beginning to end, and that is why he is to be praised and glorified. But even that's not the appointment I'm talking about. Look again at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what I just mentioned. And appointed, here's the appointment, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We are saved and called to love God and then, in response, love each other for the purpose of bearing fruit. It is not just about my salvation. It is not just about the certainty that I have that I'm not going to hell, but I'm going to heaven when I die. God has saved each of us for a purpose, and that purpose is the bearing of fruit. And this is what I talked about or alluded to earlier. We miss the connection sometimes between our love for each other within the church and the fruit or lack thereof flowing out of the church. Sometimes we complain, well, there's not enough, not enough happening. I wish there were more visible evidence that God was at work in our midst. I wish there were more fruit. And I agree with you. We all, I think we would all agree with that. But sometimes we miss the connection that maybe there's not as much fruit as we would like Because there's not as much love as there ought to be. Because we are not loving one another as Christ has modeled for us. Because we do not understand enough the love of God for us in Christ. And therefore we are not living that kind of love out. The idea of bearing fruit again goes back to that I am statement. I am the vine. You are the branches. Fruit can only come as we abide in the vine. It can't happen apart from that. Now, fruit can certainly refer to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Paul mentions in the book of Galatians. It can refer to new converts, which I think is what it is talking about here. And this is not temporary, but this is lasting fruit. In verse 5, Jesus says that abiding in him results in much fruit, much lasting fruit. You remember when we used to get fruit for Christmas? I mean, even I'm old enough to remember that, that I used to have an apple and an orange in my stocking. Maybe we need more fruit for Christmas. Not in your stocking, but in the church. Maybe we need to bear fruit by loving God and loving others. Well, the paragraph closes with a promise concerning prayer. In context, it is clearly a The aspect of intercessory prayer, that is prayer for others. Do we pray for God to use us? Do we pray that God would bear fruit through us and that others would come to know him and love him? Again, this is not a prayer of, of a magical promise that we will get everything and anything that we want It is instead a reminder that as we abide in Christ and as Christ produces fruit through us, our hearts and wills will be changed so that we will be praying in accordance with God's will. And obviously, as we pray according to God's will, our prayers will be answered. But loving others is not easy. Even more so within the body of Christ, perhaps. Especially when people sin against us because we know they ought not to do that. We know enough about our relationship with Christ that others should not sin against us. And so when they do, we, we hold a grudge. and we, make it, we find it hard to forgive. Or even when people just disagree with us. It might not be a matter of sin. It might be a matter of disagreement. In such cases, we tend to look at them and see their past and have a hard time looking beyond that and loving them. But again, this teaching by Jesus is rather clear. We do not love on the basis of how worthy or unworthy someone else is. We do not love on the basis of how they might reciprocate that love and love us in return. Our love for others is not to be concentrating on what we get out of it. We abide in Christ. We bask in His love for us, and His love for us then leads us to love others in return. Now, a sermon like this is applicable in many ways, and the easy way to go about it is to simply say this. I'm confident that many of you, maybe not all, but most of us, have already been thinking about someone in this congregation whom we simply don't love as much as we should. Something has happened in the past, and it has broken that relationship in minor or major ways, and therefore the Holy Spirit has brought this person to mind, and we now know that we need to love them more and better. And so perhaps we need to go to them after the service is over with or call them this week and set up a time for coffee and confess that to them and then try to come up with with specific action ways that we can demonstrate that love. And all of that is good. You might need to do that. But the problem with that is it's likely to be short-lived. That is, you're only going to do it once this week and then you're done. That's the way application from guilt or manipulation tends to work. You you feel guilty for some measure of time, and therefore you respond, but eventually that guilt fades away, and you go back to your old ways. So while that is good, it it is not my application today. Instead, my application today goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. I am the vine, you are the branches. I, I want to encourage you this Christmas to abide in Christ, now, sometimes we say, that, say it in terms of make Christ the center of your Christmas or make sure in all of the busyness of Christmas you don't forget about Christ. And, and those are good ways to say it. But John says it, or Jesus says it in John like this, Abide in me. I want you to bask in the love of God for you this Christmas. A love that is seen in the coming of the Christ child in Bethlehem But a love that does not stop there, a love that goes beyond the cradle all the way to the cross, and it certainly doesn't stop there either. It goes beyond the cross into the empty tomb, and it doesn't even stop there. It goes beyond that to where Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, where the Bible says he currently is making intercession for us. I want you to bask in that love. Ponder the love of Christ this Christmas. Because I'm convinced that when you do that, when we see how much God loves us, we will in fact grow in our love for Him. And when we see God's love for us and grow in our love for Him, what we've been talking about this morning will be the natural byproduct of that. That is, it will be the fruit. We will love one another, not out of duty, but out of delight, because we see how much God loves us. Let me pray.